Coming up next, the booking reads Marilyn Manson's Gilead. <laughs> what? Do you realize you keep saying Marilyn Manson? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm so glad. <laughs> I thought it was fun. No, it's not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I planted it on you. You just, oh, I just took it. Welcome to The Bookening. My name is Nathan Alberson. I am still, after all this time, your humble and obedient host, welcoming you to The Bookening today. We are going to read a novel, a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by one Marilyn Robinson, the author of Housekeeping and Lila. The name of said novel is Gilead, and I am joined today by two of my very best friends in the world, the first of those aforementioned fellows would be the man, the myth, the legend, the, 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 the pastor who's a master of reading himself, Jake Menzel. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Jake. How about yourself? Feeling flattered. Feeling flattered? Because I said you were the pastor who's a master of reading? No. Lots You're, of other things, too. Oh. <laughs> first of your best friends. Oh, yeah. The first of my best friends. And my other, the second of my best friends. Number two. Number two. <laughs> Coming in at a distant second. Coming in as a distant second. No, no, no. There is no order among my best friends. And my second best friend is the PhD, ABD himself. He's a landowner, a homeowner, a husband, father. Five children. Five children. A father of five children, a husband of one wife. Two vehicles. Two vehicles. <laughs> a mailbox. A mailbox, a house, various possessions inside that house. He is, of course, I think we've delayed saying his name long enough now, my very best friend in the whole world, Brandon Chasteen. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Pretty good. Now, where would you rank me on your list of uh, <clears throat> friends? Right up there at the top. Right up there at the top. Yep. Would you, in fact, put me in best territory? Oh, yeah. Both you guys. <laughs> right up there. <laughs> right up there at the top. Anyway, I think we've delayed long enough. Today, we're going to read Gilead, the uh, book that took 24 years to write after her first novel, Housekeeping. Or, I don't know if it took 24 years to write, but... It's 24 years coming. 24 years in the making. Yeah. Jurassic Park was 365 million years in the making. Yeah. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> According to the tagline, yeah. <laughs> but Gilead was only twenty-four. What did you guys? What do you guys feel like is a better work of art, Jurassic Park or Gilead by Marilyn Robinson? Man, <laughs> it's not a fair question. As a kid, my <laughs> because dad, it's so obviously was, Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the first PG thirteen movie my dad took me to see in the theaters. Oh, really? Yeah, it's as a kid that was awesome. Right. Yeah, my first PG-13 movie with my dad was Independence Day, around that same time. And that movie holds a fond place in my heart for that reason. Nostalgia has a strong pool, as this book tells us <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> over and over again. Jake, what was your first movie that you saw that was PG-13? Do you remember that as a thing? Or the first uh, movie that your dad took you to that was like a cool... like The first movie my dad took me to that was a cool thing was Batman at the drive-in that was super cool batman uh, with jack nicholson and- yeah jack nicholson and uh michael keaton wow 
Yep. Wow. <laughs> Memories. Memories. All I remember is Batman. And I remember how cool it was. I remember how cool the opening. All of a sudden you realize that. It pulls out of the logo. Yeah, it pulls out of the logo. You thought you were in like this maze or something and it was the logo. That I thought that was really cool. Bum, 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 and the music was so bum. epic coming well, over the why didn't car stereo. Why didn't they bring that music the... over into the Christopher Wallen movies? Why didn't they? Yeah, they should have just used that music. I mean, it's, I mean can, you th- can you think of a single note of the, th- the scoring for... That's like every Christopher Nolan score ever. But that, yeah, but that those Batman scores were awesome. Yeah, Danny Elfman. Yep, Gilead (laughs) sure is a wonderful work of. Fiction. Fiction. But this all ties in because Gilead is a novel about memory and childhood and sons and fathers, and that's really what we've been talking about. I feel anyway. Gilead. Gilead, yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's turn now to Gilead. Oh no! Uh, a trap door is opening up beneath my feet. I'm falling down into it. Oh, the humanity! Where'd he go? What happened? Uh, he's he's gone. It's just that gaping hole in the ground. I now. really liked how he hovered over the trap door for a second, yeah, long enough to kinda... tell us what what happened. Yeah. <laughs> It's like straight out of one of those cartoons. Yeah. Even yeah, held up a sign kind of, that said, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do we... I guess we just keep going. I, so... I don't know. I, some background, I guess. Isn't I that guess, what usually I happens mean, next? Yeah, some I mean, context? I really don't know what to do now, though. Well, I think the show... I think what Nathan would want is for the show to go on. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we could stop right now and, like, try to find him or figure out what's happening to him or, like... <laughs> it's a really long way down. It's a though. long way down. And I think the best way... I think the best thing to do is to just assume that he's dead. Yeah. And try to honor his memory by going on with the show. I don't hear any screaming or anything. So. Yeah, so it's most likely he's dead. Obviously, we just go on with the show. The show must go on. I think that's the only way to... Whoa, wait, what? Oh, my goodness. Whoa. There's a uh... man who is... Uh... Hello, man. What's How are that? you? Rapping at your door? Why are you wearing a mask? What it's are you only close? me and nothing more. The mysterious phantom. Awesome. <laughs> wait. Why are you dancing around? Why are you running around? With... Like... <laughs> He's like running Somebody around. Somebody call the... Call the... He kind of actually looks a lot like Nathan, He's but he's wearing a Zorro mask and a purple cape, and he's obviously, I think he bought this at like the Dollar General, maybe? He's clearly Walmart. disturbed. At... Yeah. Have you... Let me just... Do you mind if I get on microphone here? <laughs> Why are you talking like that? Because I am the mysterious phantom. The mysterious what? You yeah. ask yourself who I am. I am the wolf, and you are the lamb. <laughs> For the mysterious phantom am I, and now you both are going to die. You're gonna die. Is that a... You don't, you don't seem appropriately uh, terrified. Well, you are wearing a Zorro mask. It's not, it's, it, it, it's not a Zorro mask. It's a mysterious phantomic mask, as worn by the mysterious phantom. Fantamic. Wow. Fan- yeah, yeah, I think. Okay. Now you have fallen into my trap. You have thought to pitch your wits against the mysterious phantom. And yet, I have thought of everything <laughs> to serve you the dish that is best, best, that is best served cold. Also known as revenge. <laughs> the very self-same dish that I will be serving you. I, the mysterious phantom. What did we do to deserve your revenge? 
everything. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Not everything. Just... <laughs> Just something. A very specific list of things. So, not even really a whole lot of things. Really only one thing. One thing, okay. That's not everything. Okay, I misspoke. <laughs> Maybe you should be the so, mysterious phantom of hyperbole. I'm not the mysterious family, phantom of hyperbole. I am only a phantom who is mysterious. So what's the one thing that's everything? You are podcasters. <laughs> my most hated form of infotainment. <laughs> So why are you listening to us in the first place? Because I cannot... That's a really good question. (laughs) Because to plot my revenge, a dish best served cold. Sounds good. I have a vendetta against all podcasts. Oh, no. Ever since my wife, Beatrice, died thanks to a podcast. How'd that happen? It was around the, the the renaissance of podcasts when Serial first came out. Yeah. My wife was a big true crime fan, and she liked Dateline and How to Catch a Murderer and things like that. And so you can imagine, as she listened to Serial, she was enraptured and kept her ear glued to the iPhone until the poor thing wasted away and died. That's awful. Sounds like a personal problem. Yeah. No, it was entirely due to podcasts and how terrible they are. You're disturbed. Yeah, so, you're, uh, something's wrong here, buddy. Is Nathan okay? Or He lies at the bottom of the mysterious abyss. Oh, so can you like join our podcast then and fill in for him? No, I am here to enact my revenge against you. Okay. And serve us this cold dish? Serve you the aforementioned cold dish of revenge. You are about to play with me the most (laughs) dangerous game. Is that right? A game that I've devised based on literature, because this is, in fact, as I've surmised through listening to every episode multiple times... A literature podcast, is it not? Are you, are you sure you're just not a really big fan who is desperate to get on the show? I'm not the fanatical phantom, lest I remind you, or I'm going to remind you, I am the mysterious phantom. Yeah. Wow. And it took you multiple listens to every episode to figure out that this is a literature podcast. Yes. It's very clever. But you hate very, podcasts. Very clever, yes. I hate podcasts, and I'm going to eventually bring about the demise of all podcasts. And so we were a good place to start because Roman Mars was too busy, or? Roman Mars is of no importance. <laughs> he will be swept aside. Ira Glass will join the dust heap of history. And so you chose us why? I chose the most important podcast I could find. <laughs> The podcast that most deserved, the most intriguing, the most, the podcast full of the most info and full of the most attainment that I could find. And I thought, I will bring this podcast to ruination. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, I'm waiting to see. uh, And so now we will play. Are you gentlemen ready to play? Yeah. The most dangerous game as devised by me, the mysterious phantom. Yeah. Uh, Sure. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Yeah. (laughs) Why are you saying that? That's, that's my thing. That's your okay. That's my thing. That's really weird. I listened to twenty episodes. I don't think I've ever heard you, you say that. Say yeehaw. No. Not while shooting my gun like this. What on earth are you talking about? Huh? That sounds really weird. Yeah. You've not listened to it's, a single episode, have you? I've downloaded all of them multiple times. <laughs> 
In any case, I understand that this is a literature podcast. Yeah, when he does that thing, it's time for him to uh, be the contextual Texan. I see. Well, here's what we'll do. We're going to play, as I mentioned before, the most dangerous game. Oh, right. Yeah. Great. And if you know your literature, you know that the most dangerous game is man. So we're going to play man? No! (laughs) We're going to play a dangerous game involving men. Ah, involving ah. your death. I have in my hand two levers connected to devices which will trigger... I've heard beavers are pretty dangerous. <laughs> I'm not talking about beavers. I'm talking about levers. Oh, levers. <laughs> it's not beave it to lever. It's leave it to beaver. I see. I'm going to... Both of these levers will trigger... What was that thing that that other fat guy fell into? The, the trap door. The trap door. You both have trap doors underneath you. Uh-oh. I am going to ask you various literature questions. Can I just move yeah, my just chair over? I wish you wouldn't. <laughs> I think I'm just going to yeah, move, yeah. move yeah. my chair. That can sort I... of ruins the, the premise of the most dangerous game. So you just need us to stay here. Oh. Oh, oh, over these. Okay, we'll stay over the trap doors. You guys just stay over the trap doors. And the way the game works is I ask you questions. If you don't answer them to my satisfaction, I pull the levers. And you fall in and you die. Great. Okay. Joining the, the great corpse of your friend. You know, yeah, you, you kind of look size. like him. I'm just yeah, you kind do. of... Can't, you sure no! Honest. If you saw beneath my mask, then you would see the painful, mysterious vis- visage that oh. gives me the nom de plume, the mysterious phantom, the reason I must wear this fan- phantomic mask. Oh, right. Okay. But you won't. Right. Because I have to maintain some mystery in order right. to be... Uh-huh. Okay, the, go ahead. Okay. So it's like a Zorro play, thing, play not the a game. Phantom of the Opera thing. No! <laughs> it's a revenge thing. A revenge thing. Served right. cold. Yeah. Served icy cold. Like Dippin' Dots. It's it pretty good? cold. Yeah. Yes. Pretty, pretty good. The stuff. coldest thing. The ice cream of the stars, as they call it. Sounds or something like that. That's poetry, man. Yeah. Yes. But I'm not the poetical phantom. No. I'm the mysterious phantom. And... Anyway, uh, what book should I ask you guys about? We've read a lot of books. Well, name one. I'm, I'm willing to work with you guys on this thing. Uh, it's only well, fair that it be a good, dangerous game. How about this one we just read called Gilead? Gilead! One of my very favorite novels. Seems out of character. <laughs> I just found the description of father-son relationships and the, the passage of time to be incredibly profound and moving. Oh, yeah? It was. Tell us a little more about yeah. that. No. You shall tell me. Answer wrong. And you'll hear the Lever's song. <laughs> the Lever's song? Answer and, right. And you'll feel the blight of continued existence. The blight. The blight of a continued... I'm a, very, a rather depressed phantom as well. <laughs> Ever since Beatrice's untimely starvation due to cereal. Wait, Why aren't you taking this out with cereal, man? Because... Yeah, they're not yeah. worth it. <laughs> that second season, man, yeah, was kind of bad. <laughs> really lame. It's like, <laughs> who cares about Burke? Well, yeah, we're just gonna just be all political now. <laughs> thing. Anyway, all right, Gilead. It is. I shall ask you questions about Gilead, and you shall answer them. Answer wrong, you'll hear the Lever song. Answer right, you'll enjoy the blight of continued existence. Brandon, I think you should start us off by offering some much-needed context on this work. <laughs> can Can I fire my six shooter? If it makes you feel good. Just let me reach down here in my boot. Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> All right. You, now, know, you could have just shot him in the head. And put I didn't sh- think of that. How many <laughs> shots does that thing have? <laughs> Six. They're all gone. 
I'm out of bullets now. <laughs> okay, good. Um, give me some context, but beware, for my hand rests upon the lever there. <laughs> well, you haven't listened to the podcast before. You have. You've you've downloaded it. So I've downloaded you, it. This is the first modern novel we've dealt with in the world of the bookening. So not a whole lot to say about Marilyn Robinson. She is a modern writer in the sense that she's a lot like someone like Joyce Carol Oates or John Irving. She was trained at the Academy, went on to write her first book, Homecoming, which was published in 1980, I believe. Is that right? 24 years before the publication of Gilead, which came in 2004. Yeah, so 1980. And then she wrote Gilead 24 years later. I didn't take the time really to figure out what she was doing in between those years. But I know that she now teaches at the Iowa School of – well, University of Iowa, which is famous for its MFA program. So she's the first author we've seen that comes out of this elitist school of highly trained writers and now even teaches. She didn't actually, she wasn't herself trained at the University of Iowa, but she now teaches at this school that's known for producing some of the great American New Yorker short story writers. Such as? John Irving is famous. Flannery O'Connor came from University of Iowa. Those are the ones that most people would know. If you look over the list, actually, it's surprising. Not many of them have received acclaim. So, but it is known for being the most prestigious. It's like Ju- okay. it's like the Juilliard School for music. It's where people who want to become the next big thing in academic writing go. And so, are they all just a bunch of stuffed shirts? Yeah, I think so. Um, not not all of them. I mean, John Irving is the unusual one. He wrote Prayer for Owen Meany. He wrote. Did you write the Cider House rules? rules? Yes. Things that are not as um, elitist, to use that word for a fifth time, I think. So it's really hard to get past your mask. (laughs) Hard to get past the mysterious phantom mask. I just want to see whatever's under there. And you never shall. Yeah. So anyway, so she taught there for a while. She's a congregationalist. So she writes from a pseudo-Christian perspective. She's often liked by the same people who like writers like Wendell Berry the poet. She's known for her simple style, which praises everyday things. And a lot like Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poet, that his idea was to see Christ in the small things. And to, then his poetry was attempting to look at the small things and to show God's beauty in it. So his famous one is The Falcons. I, she works on a very similar level, trying to look at these small details and show the beauty that is in them. So for I was reading one of her interviews. She likens herself and then also distances, her, distances herself from a writer like Flannery O'Connor, who she says she loves her language, but she hates her imagination because Flannery, never, Flannery never showed the goodness in anything. And so Marilyn really wants to show the goodness of spiritual life and things. She's also one of the writers that we've seen who's in this era of writing where you get awards for your literature. You have now these awards like the Pulitzer Prize. You have the National Critics Water Book Circle Award. You have the uh, Penn Faulkner Award. You have the Hemingway Award. She's received almost all of these. The only one she hasn't received is the Man Booker. I don't think she's ever gotten that because she's not British. And she's also never received a Nobel Prize because she's not Eastern an Eastern Bloc writer. <laughs> so... 
So that's some background on her. I mean, uh, to put her in context of where literature is today, that's kind of a hard question. Literature's in a strange place right now. You've got it's becoming very global, and also at the so American literature is has fallen in its esteem lately. Is that what you mean by global? Yeah. So if you look at the Nobel Prize, for example, I don't, I can't remember. We could probably look it up, but I don't remember the last time an American has won the Nobel Prize for literature. Reverend Mentel, would you be so kind as to look that up? To look up what? <laughs> he was phased out. He was, he was out of it. I'm the, sorry, I've been entranced by your mask. So <laughs> My mask is very... Ent- Sometimes I've it been is. called uh, the entrancing phantom, but more properly I'm known as the mysterious phantom. I can hardly do this. I'm just staring at that mask. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't even know what I well, said. What would you Aaron like me Robinson. to look up? The, the most recent American Nobel Prize winner. Right. But if you think of the other American writers who are writing alongside her, you have Joyce Carol Oates, you have Jonathan Safran Foer, Zadie Smith. They're all kind of a part of the same circle, kind of a part of her era, but doing different things. Um, Zadie Smith is much more postmodern, much more fragmented with her writing. So Marilyn Robinson is fairly a fairly straightforward writer. I've read Homecoming too. That was fairly straightforward, though it is very contemplative. It's not very experimental. Jonathan Safran Foer with oh what was that book he wrote the extremely loud whatever and close. incredibly close yeah extremely loud incredibly close his first book whatever that was he was much more experimental in his own way too as far as I can tell she's not really a short story writer she has books of essays that she's written in that sense she doesn't really take part of this New Yorker crowd so she's She's kind of her own figure within American literature. I, I would say the closest that might come to her is this writer called Annie Dillard, who wrote The Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek, who is is similar in sentiment in the sense that she's trying to write these very slow books that are meant to look closely at things and by looking closely at things, find some sort of revelation in them. You think that's a fair assessment of at least partly of what she's trying to do? I think so, that's a very fair assessment. Thank you. <laughs> So what to say about the modern – so to just kind of digress for a moment, what to say about the modern landscape of well, the, American Well, the names literature. that you all just named are sort of the old guard at this point, are they not? Yeah, and I don't know who really would be the new guard. I mean, you've still got like – your popular writers like Stephen King is still writing. Frazier. Frazier. That, uh, the corrections guy. Oh, Jonathan Frazier. Yeah, he's writing. And then you have – I don't know. Cormac McCarthy's still around. He's still writing, who I'm sure will approach one day. But – it seems like we're at a strange moment in literature where things are kind of static with American letters. You don't have any big superstar writer like you would have with Hemingway or with Faulkner or any of these characters. She ha- She's very famous and popular in her own right and in her own circle. And obviously you have like Stephen King and you have Jake. Well, J.K. Rowling's not American. but and maybe it's just me getting old and not really staying up with the times enough anymore. <laughs> But it doesn't seem like you have the same sort of landscape as you would have had. Certainly never no one who crosses over into the larger pop culture landscape. Yeah. So there are very few household name authors at this time. Yeah, but you still have so Cormac McCarthy, he's still is he's writing still. And you have the Although he's in his eighties now. Yeah. So I don't Did you have something you were at Tony Morrison? She was the last one. In what year? 1993. Not, wow, so 
over 20 years unless my math deserts me. You have all these authors who are thrown around as possible Nobel laureate. It's like Philip Roth, and he's still writing, but all of them are getting old. It's also perhaps fair to say that until posterity has done its bloody work, it's hard to know who will be culled from the pack and who will remain. Yeah, so we're at this moment in at this moment with Marilyn Robinson, we're reading her. She's a contemporary to us. And you can look at the other writers who are producing work, but it's like if you were to live at the same time as Dickens and be reading his stuff, you have no clue what's going to become of them in 20 years. And you don't, of course, want to do a podcast where you're dismissive of him and then he becomes the Charles Dickens. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I wonder, where will you fall on Robinson and where will posterity fall? That's a good question. It's another mystery. Like the mystery of me, the mysterious phantom. Yes. <laughs> it's so mysterious. Very mysterious, yeah. Yes. But one thing you can do is look at the past and see how she relates and what she's trying to do in relation to like American letters. So I think that she's obviously following in this tradition of like Faulkner. He had um, these books in these in these big Southern books in a strange way, this is, even though it's a Midwestern book, has a very Southern taste to it in the sense of how slow it is. And also, but especially in its relation to memory and to family. So it's very concerned with the relation of fathers and sons, history and genealogy, and how you tell the story of yourself to yourself and to your children. And so this, and to this extent, it's a lot like Absalom, Absalom, which is a William Faulkner novel, which tells the story of a grandfather told by a father to his son. And it's told multiple times from different perspectives. But in a similar way, then it also deals with memory and the way that we remember things and how that memory relates to the present and how the present relates to the way we remember the past. Uh, and then it also relates to who we are in relation to our father and to our sons. And so that makes it in a very, I don't want to say Southern novel, but at least a very Faulkner-esque novel in that way. And also, Faulkner had all those novels set in that county. Yeah, Yachnatapau. Yachnatapka County or whatever. And and yeah. Her, she apparently, though I've not read them, her other novels actually concern some of these characters. There's one about Lila. Yeah. And one about Jack Bowden. And so, yeah, so it participates in this world buildings hit, uh, tradition. Faulkner did it. You have other writers who also did the same thing, but Faulkner's the most famous, where his novels all build on one another. They stand alone, but they also tell stories in relation to one another and have very complex relationships to, like I said, memory and um, family and place. Uh, to just throw in the most popular academic stance towards this sort of thing would be Harold Bloom, who talks a lot about the anxiety of influence and how writers who are always obsessed with talking about fathers and sons are actually talking about the writers that they feel the mo- that they're most influenced by. That sounds very silly. <laughs> it is very silly. But hey, I felt like throwing it in there for whatever reason. <laughs> Perhaps I will put Harold Bloom on my list. Maybe you should go th- put him over this trap door and let me... In. Jake out of here. I'm coming for you, old man, after I deal with these rapscallions. I don't think Harold Bloom has a podcast, though. I don't care. (laughs) One of the benefits of being a mysterious phantom is you can really sort of do what you want. Any more context? I don't think so. The lever remains unmoved. 
Thank you. That was some brilliant context, Chastine. <laughs> I loved every minute of it. I was enraptured. Wow. Mental. Yeah. A question for you. You are a, a man of the cloth, are you not? He could say that, yeah. I can see the you are in fact dressed in black and there's the white thing around your neck right now. You I assume <laughs> you always right? come to the podcast dressed right? like that. Actually tonight's special. I've never worn this in my life. You're just feeling rather rev- reverend wrenchel or whatever. I don't know. Maybe. Anyway, I, I understand that you're a man of the cloth. Is that in fact correct? <coughs> yes. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the Congregationalists. I guess all that you really need to know is that they were born out of the uh, separatist uh, movements in England. A lot of Puritans, very reformed or Calvinistic in origin. A lot of Puritans were Congregationalists. I think John Owen was a Congregationalist. Most of, most famous American Congregationalist is the most famous American pastor ever, Jonathan Edwards. And so uh, that sort of at least the roots of congregationalism in America, that sort of New England, uh, reformed Calvinistic, but also independent. What's distinguishing about congregationalism versus, say, Presbyterianism, which we also have show up in the novel, is uh, the form of government that's uh, independent local churches that are congregationally led, as opposed to ruled by elders and interconnected uh, with other with other churches, not to say that there aren't associations of Congregationalist churches, but they would say they're associations, and they don't answer, finally, to anybody outside of the independent local body. The independent local body has everything it needs to be a uh, full expression of the Church of Christ, and so that's the that's the sort of theology behind it. Is um, there a stereotype or a uh, personality type that tends to be go along with it, the way we think of Baptists as being a certain way, or Presbyterians? Well, Baptists are congregational, but if you identify as congregationalist, you're probably, at this point, you go to something more like a United Church of Christ kind of church. You're going to be a little more liberal and... As I believe Miss Robinson, in fact, is. Yeah, that's right. I know she preaches sometimes in her congregationalist church... Yeah, so you're not going to find part of congregationalism is you're going to you're not going to find a lot of uniformity as you uh, go from church to church because each church is it's independent and has developed over you know its lifetime. But yeah, there's going to be I think at least in certain strains a very distinct flavor that's represented very well by John Ames. Even as back in the fifties, you're just going to find everything pushed much farther down the road in terms of uh, the roles of women in the church and homosexuals. You know, now as opposed to Ames writing in the late forties, early fifties, or whenever it was. Early fifties, I believe. Yeah, that might be a leverable offense, but I'll let you off this time. What's well, confusing because the only one of the only dates mentioned in the book is 1948, when the well, he says he's going to. Either vote or not vote for Eisenhower, Eisenhower right. which would yeah, put it somewhere in that. the 50s, I do believe. If he survives. If he survives. Right. The very question that the two of you must be most empathetic of. I'm not really concerned about who I'm... Yeah, I'm not even sure this is real. It kind of looks like it's painted on the floor. <laughs> the mysterious phantom does not paint trapdoors. Where'd you find time to dig these holes? The mysterious phantom employs cheap Mexican labor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was just Googling how to deal with the mysterious phantom, but there's nothing. You're so mysterious, the internet's never heard of you. That's right. <laughs> of course they have not. If, 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 if I was all over Google, then 
I'd be the well-known phantom, wouldn't I? I'd be the famous phantom. I'd be yeah, the... You can be famous and mysterious. The un... I find that to be a paradox. <laughs> I find that to be an almost leverable paradox, my friend. But... You're not the sharpest tool in the shed, are you? I am a very intelligent and mysterious phantom. Yeah, I think I found a lever over here. Yeah, aren't you sitting over a hole? He did sit right back in the spot where Nathan was. That's true, but... Can we up to Annie and ask you questions? I think we should, but... Yeah. But only I get to control my lever. (laughs) (laughs) Can you... So can you... You can... Would you... In the context of this game, would you lever yourself if it came down to it? That depends. What's what's in it for me if I win? (laughs) Does anybody want to make this interesting? Put some money on the table. Ten bucks. Ten bucks? Okay, for ten bucks, I'll do it. (laughs) Okay. All right. But I control all three levers. (laughs) Okay. All right. right, Everybody put your money on the table. You guys have a lot of very loud one dollar bills. All right. We shall continue asking more questions, playing this, the most dangerous game. Called man, right? Called man. I'm working with Hasbro right now to see if they want to do, do a version of it, but they're a little stuck on the whole death thing. I have a friend at Parker Brothers. If I survive this thing, I'll hook you up. Well, we'll just have to see about that. For $30, I can, I can buy, like, a DVD. <laughs> My next question for both of you fellows, Chastine and Menzel... I can just go through my notes here. I, I wrote some notes on Gilead. I thought it might be the novel we chose. What do you feel is the... Uh, let's, let's just jump right in. Yeah, okay. What do, what do you feel is the significance of the novel setting? It's set in the early 20th century. It could be set in the dinosaur times. It could be set in the, the uh, you know... Uh, medieval renaissance times it could be set in the late 20th or 21st century and yet it's set in the civil war into the 50s with eisenhower what what is the deal with that do you suppose well she did have to pick a setting didn't she she did brilliant (laughs) you both survived another round (laughs) i mean it certainly plays into a lot of nostalgia right I mean, if part of what she's trying to do is cast a nostalgic glow around everything that John Ames writes, she can make him your grandfather mm-hmm. or your great-grandfather even. Grandfather's dad for... I mean, the farther back it goes and the more anachronistic... That's not the right word, but the more out of out of context it puts you, the more you can paint this kind of iconic middle American world. Yeah. And play on a lot of themes that resonate deep down with lots of people, even people who are, you know, on the East Coast or on the West Coast, because, you know, they're the Ames family are are East Coast transplants. And so, you know, we all we all came from similar places. Nobody in America. We all transitioned. Our families all came from other places and transitioned across country so like i said about the faulkner stuff earlier all his stuff was set in you had the grandfather who fought in the civil war and then you had the people after that dealing with the memory of that and also the way that that still affects them 
And so here it's the bloody Kansas stuff that occurred and the not really knowing what the grandfather had done, knowing that he had been with John Brown and the shadow that that cast over him and the shadow that that then cast over the family and them trying to deal with who he was and what that makes them. And then you have... Yeah, if you're going to... Sorry to interrupt, but if you're going to try to to blaze new territory in this sort of genre, one of the places that hasn't been blazed is the plains and uh, the mid the Midwest. Yeah. You're not in deep south like the, the southern literature. You're not California like Steinbeck. You're, and so then you've got to pick a really interesting and provocative time period to explore in the life of, of people from that region. So Iowa, who, who's done Iowa? Who's done Iowa and Kansas? Who's done that? No one. And so that's compelling. That's an idea. Hey, who's done this whole middle America thing? You know, we've done, Twain's done like Missouri down. Faulkner's done, you know, the deep South. O'Connor's done the deep South. Who's done Iowa? And so, I mean, that's another reason for the time period is just, okay, what's interesting around this time and evocative and is going to like scratch people and make them think, oh yeah, I remember reading about that in history and we didn't spend too much time on it, but. Yeah. And so it's, it's like she's revising. Well, we know what she said about O'Connor. It's almost like she's revising what they did and just in terms of the Midwest, because you don't get the sense of, well, for one, you don't get the sense of judgment that you get in O'Connor here. There's nothing gothic or eccentric about it. And you also don't get the sense of angsty, weirdness that you get with Faulkner. So simple white bread middle American. Yeah. And yet with that it's it's archetypal and yet it's not Andy Griffith. You know, it's not it's not too archetypal. It strikes a nice balance. It does. Good point, Mysterious Phantom. Thank you. <laughs> I shall not be levering myself for that one. I suppose I should also ask you fellows, what and I don't know if anyone's ever asked a question like this on the podcast before, but what type of baggage did you bring to this novel? That's a really unique yes, question. Yes, unique. That's the word I would... I, I thought you yeah. might like that question. You know, I don't know that... I mean, you're pretty good at this podcasting thing. Do, do you want a job? I mean, our host is dead, so... Your host is dead, and soon his two... What's what goes along with the host? Soon his two parasites will be dead as well. Parasites? <laughs> That's what goes with the host. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. One time I may have been the amateur scientist phantom. <laughs> it's possible I may have done experiments with acid that may not have paid I've, off so well. I've, I've ah, I gotcha. Yeah. Pieces are starting to come together over here. Mm, but they never will. <laughs> they shall always remain mysterious. <laughs> In any case, I thought it might be interesting to ask what baggage you brought to the, this uh, particular novel. I, I can say for myself that I didn't know anything about this novel going into it. I knew Marilyn Robinson's name, perhaps, but even that might be me putting on airs. I, I don't know that I knew anything about it. I had a vague sense of it as a sort of, sort of novel that my mom might read about intergenerational sort of fathers and sons in the South sort of thing, which did basically prove to be what it was, but other than that, I... I sort of had that baggage, and that's what I brought to it. And maybe I was against it a little bit, because, you know, Steinbeck's done the whole intergenerational thing. Come on, how many novels of, you know, growing up in the in the South in the old times do we really need? How many Americana sort of novels do we really need? That's, I can't speak for the perhaps not so dearly departed fat man that went down, down the chute, but that's how I felt about it. Oh. I had read Homecoming before. And is that a... Good novel. Yeah, it's good. 
It's good in the same sense that this, this is good. Just kind of a slice of life mosaic of a yeah, it's, small it's community or something like that. Yeah, it's basically exactly what it sounds like. It's about a woman doing homecoming <laughs> or home homemaking, not homecoming. Did I say homecoming? Yeah. I think it is homecoming, though, isn't it? Is it homecoming or homemaking? I think it's homemaking. Housekeeping. Housekeeping. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Uh, you we should, should lever us all. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I'm just going to lever us both. It's over. <laughs> you pass some over to me. Boy. And... Wow. I think I've been saying homecoming this whole time. It's housekeeping. I don't have a point besides that. So you'd read housecoming. Yeah, I'd had, I had read housecoming. <laughs> Domicile creation, I think yeah. you'd read. Yes, I had read it and liked it and was expecting to like this. And recently I've kind of I've become burned out with the whole crowd that surrounds the Marilyn Robinson admiration. She was up at Calvin College doing some sort of books in Christianity thing. And it's just a sort of fake Wow. Yeah, sure. A sort of fake uh, snobbery that surrounds her, all this new gentrification of everything, but everything that's gentrified is also homegrown and small. And You mean the sort of hipster Wendell Berry yes, sort of, exactly. I smoke a pipe and therefore I'm cool sort of. I smoke a pipe. So. And I, I didn't know that. You're very cool in my <laughs> Thank opinion. You. Yeah, but the whole craft brew, small town, we're all going to now be best you know what I mean? And it, yeah, I, no, I that's, burned, that's very become, similar to, this, to the baggage I brought to it. The baggage, if I can just kind yeah. of pick that up. First of all, this book has been recommended to me so many times by so many people. It's been given to me twice. So I had two copies at some point. I think I gave one of them away. One of them given to me by an old religious studies professor of mine. And when I see that many people going gaga for something, and especially when I see it start to to come through the sort of mainstreamed reformed Christian pipelines, like then I feel like, okay, this is somebody that every poser, everybody who's posturing themselves as being sophisticated or whatever is is behind it. I don't really want to have anything to do with that. So that's the, that's the sort of aura about Marilyn Robinson that I've just sort of wanted to avoid. Yes. Exactly. Nothing worse than posers and posturers and people no. who won't admit who they are. <laughs> no, nothing worse than that. <laughs> the very worst type of rapscallion. Yeah. <laughs> Oddly enough, Books and Culture, which is the blog by Christianity Today. Yeah, John Wilson. Yeah, they did not like Gilead. Really? No. Huh. What did they have to say about it, I wonder? That it was cheap, that her presentation of the gospel and grace was wefafin. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm As going my... to lever you on general principle, I think. And that, well, What'd of they course, but they, they, they went the other poser route, though. They said that she should have been more like Flannery O'Connor. Oh, so. gross. <laughs> if only there could have been more... I know. <laughs> more awful death. More children walking into rivers and drowning themselves. A- anytime everybody comes at you and says, this is a book that every Christian should read or every pastor should read, you just want to sort of like... Yeah, it's like that Gag Francis Chan run, book right. that was going around for a while. Is that his name? Who's who's uh, what's that? Crazy Love. Yeah. Is that it? Ah, yes. I never read that either. I had like a thousand people tell me, this is the book to read. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to read that book. Yeah, since you're telling me to read this, I'm not going to do it. The actual, the most compelling recommendation actually was from my former religious studies professor. I studied religious studies at Indiana University, which is not the same as studying Bible at a Bible college. And... Uh, to say the least, is a very hostile environment for 
for Christians. This was uh, the professor that I respected the most, liked the most, and she was a, she's a liberal Roman Catholic, and the only professor I knew in the religious studies department that made any claim to Christian faith whatsoever. And you would never have known that she was Roman Catholic unless you visited her office hours and just asked her. But so I, I think coming from a source like that for me was uh, was much different than, you know, reading something where everybody's like, you should read this if you're a pastor because it's going to like teach you empathy and stuff like this. Yeah. Oh, come on. Like, <laughs> Get over yourself. <laughs> Please. Yes, I, I see how sophisticated you are because you like Marilyn Robinson like everybody else. Because you read a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. Wow, yeah. That's you, a big thing. You were in for Bar- you. You were in Barnes & Noble and you saw a sticker that was gold on the cover of your book. today was written by me, the Mysterious Phantom, and performed by me, the Mysterious Phantom, and also performed under great fear and duress and trembling, correct? By Mensal and Chastine, fearing for their very lives. Trembling the whole time. Trembling the whole time. If you liked this podcast, you probably shouldn't go visit warhornmedia.com because you won't find anything else there by the Mysterious Phantom. But if you hated it, you can go there and find other wonderful episodes of The Book of Me. Yes, I've... And more uh, great content. I've been to warhornmedia.com. It's a fine website. One of my favorites. Full of wonderful content, podcasts, articles. Helpful and practical, I'd say. Wow. Yeah, so if you want to turn out like a mysterious phantom who threatens people with death, then you can go and feed at warhornmedia.com. Warhornmedia.com, yes. You can also, I believe, uh, hit up Warhorn Media as Warhorn Media on Twitter and Facebook. And Instagram. Join us next time when the game continues. The most dangerous game as hosted by me, the mysterious phantom.